that break was so short, and then when I think back to Thanksgiving, it seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? So I'm glad to be with you, and I'm excited for all that the Lord has in store for us as we take on this next semester of studying the Bible. And I want to welcome the new ladies who are here with us. I know we're missing a lot of people. It's that time of year. My son woke up with pink eye, <laughs> so I know we have people out with sickness. We have people traveling, our snowbirds, but thankful for all of you that are here today. Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for this day, for the sunshine, for your faithfulness that is new every morning, and that we experience it, that you give us strength for today, and we pray that now as we come to the study of your word, you would transform our lives, that through the hearing of your word, through what we have studied, through what we learn about you, we would be transformed, and that would have an impact in our families, in our church, in our communities, as we love and serve you. Please bless this time and be honored in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So since it's been a little while since we've been together, I just want to go back and review, as we always do, and just remind you of even the purpose of this study. When we came together back in September, I gave you a purpose statement for the year. <coughs> and I said, the purpose of the study of the New Testament is to see God's master plan through Scripture understanding how it all fits together as a whole and reveals Jesus the Messiah, his church, and his future kingdom. For those of you who'd like to take notes, I'll say that one more time. The purpose of the study of the New Testament is to see God's master plan through scripture, understanding how it all fits together as a whole and reveals Jesus the Messiah, his church, and his future kingdom. And then we began our study, it, well, if you were this year studying the book of Matthew. This has actually been a two-year study. We, we picked it up in the book of Matthew, and we saw how Matthew was all about the king. He was showing the Jews that their king had come. We saw the arrival of the king, the teaching and miracles of the king, the rejection of the king, and the death and crucifixion of the king. Then we went to the book of Luke, Luke and Luke showed us that Christ isn't just the king, he is the second Adam, right? That's why his genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, that he is going to create a new mankind, that he is going to fulfill and succeed in every way where Adam failed. And it also taught us a lot about um, how he's the second David, how he's going to be the true king, and how we are to be his disciples. A lot in the book Sarah taught us about undiscipleship and what it means to follow Christ. And that brought us to the book of John, where we see that Jesus is the fulfillment the Messiah. We see all the ways that he fulfills the Old Testament prophecy of Jesus as Messiah. And that brought us to the book of Acts. And we were looking at the foundation of the church. And if you remember when we began the book of Acts, we said that Acts is a narrative portion of scripture and it is giving us a history. It is describing accurately what happened, but it's not prescriptive. Remember we said a lot of times churches get in problems when they think they, they take Acts, um, they don't have a right hermeneutic in, a in, a, in how they approach it. And so um, you know, if we were to take everything as prescriptive, then we'd be able to raise the dead just like the apostles did, and we should all be in home churches, right? So we were saying you had to be really careful about the narrative. It's not normative, it is a history. Not that there isn't great theology and truth that we're learning, but we have to have the right approach to the text. We saw that the church was called to be a witness to the resurrection, and I said as you go through the book of Acts, highlight, underline, pay attention to how much the resurrection is emphasized. So often I think that kind of gets lost. We focus on the cross, which is great and good and well. I'm not criticizing that, but when we do it to the detriment of the resurrection, then we miss the whole point. The cross would be, not Jesus would just be another martyr, right, if there wasn't the resurrection. But it is through the resurrection that he has victory over sin and death and power, and he has purchased the world, and he becomes the second Adam, right? And so we, the whole emphasis that they are giving testimony to the resurrection. 
And I shared a couple quotes with you from Abner Chow. The first is the vision of the powerful, resurrected, glorified, living Lord Jesus Christ. And he's speaking of the, the apostles must be on their souls because it drives the entire narrative. And then he also says, this is wrapping together Old Testament and New Testament because we're looking at the kingdom, that the kingdom in concept and in essence refers to the exhaustive, complete, and total sovereignty of God over all things particularly the cosmos. In Genesis 1 through 2, God created a perfect world. And it is perfect because it was in God's sovereign control. But then in Genesis 3, Satan challenges that, right? And Adam disobeys and the kingdom falls. So how do we put everything back together? How, do, how does this get fixed? Well, there's a nation, Israel, which is meant to make an international impact by its practices proclamations, actions, and laws. It's a miniature kingdom that is going to bless the world. Remember all those covenant promises that promise blessing to the world, Abrahamic um, and Davidic particularly. It's a mini theocracy that when it takes over the world will be a worldwide theocracy, but Israel fails. Just like Adam failed through sin, Israel failed through covenant unfaithfulness. So now we have to fix Israel to fix the world. So how does that happen? Israel and the world failed because of sin, so we have to get rid of sin. And to get rid of sin, we have Jesus who comes to conquer sin and death in his resurrection. And so in Acts 1, we say Jesus is telling the disciples, we're back online. The disciples have to know the glory of Christ and all it stands for and how it impacts and how that impacts our life now so that we understand our part in the kingdom plan. You are part of God's plan to restore everything to the way it was, and the resurrection is the linchpin, right? It is the linchpin between all the covenant promises and how it can all be fulfilled because Christ conquered sin and death. And so because of this, that is what the, the, the disciples go for, the apostles go for, and they tell the world, Christ has risen from the dead. That's their message. We also saw in Acts that the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ, right? We saw over and over again the Old Testament connection to the book of Acts. And we used Darren Bach's um, summary statement, because remember Luke and Acts are really basically one book, and he said that if we were to summarize a purpose statement for those books, it would be God's promise program is realized for all nations. And the church finally is going to continue the ministry of the suffering servant until Christ's return. And so that is our review. That's what we covered from Genesis to Acts in, in the past year and a half. And we left off last um, in right before Thanksgiving in cha Acts chapter 7, where Stephen had been stoned. So that's where we're going to pick up today, and we're going to have four points today. Um, we're going to be looking at Saul's conversion in chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the Gentiles' inclusion in the church in chapter 10 and 11, and we're going to be looking at the Jerusalem Council. So Saul's conversion is my first point. The Gentiles' inclusion in the church is my second. My third is the Jerusalem Council, and fourth, we're going to be looking at um, Gen Galatians. Now, those of you who are new, I just want to explain, <laughs> we're not going to be going through all of Galatians. We are taking a unique approach to um, the epistles because we want you to see how the epistles fit in the redemptive history storyline. So we want you to see where they fit historically. So the Jerusalem Council and what it addresses directly is, is why Galatians is written. So we're going to be looking at the council, and then we're going to say, here's where Galatians fits in. We're not going to be teaching the whole book of Galatians. Pastor Brian did just teach the book of Galatians recently. I highly recommend that series to you, but we're just going to be seeing here's what Galatians' point is, and here's how it fits in. And in fact, my kids have a great little book. It's called the Big Picture Story Bible. It's probably targeting seven-year-olds, maybe five to eight or nine. I feel like my 10-year-old's a little old, so that age group. And what can be really helpful about a Bible like that is it 
really has to simplify and pare down what's really important and make it very communicable to kids, right? And so when it comes to this part of scripture, it says the church is growing and you have people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, people who haven't known the law in the Old Testament and how are they gonna know to follow Christ and how are they gonna know the truth that, that and, and how to obey and how they're supposed to live while we're waiting for Christ to come again. And then they title the chapter Letters to Live By. And the epistles have, very, have a lot of overlapping themes, perseverance in our faith, walking in the spirit, um, watching out for false teachers, suffering for Christ. And so we're gonna look at some of those themes topically as we go through the epistles. So don't think, oh my goodness, we're gonna try to cover all of that. And we're gonna look at a part of that and then see how those books fit historically in the timeline. So with that, let's go into Acts. We're going to point one, Saul's conversion. And to understand what's going on with Saul's conversion, I first want to just summarize what has been happening in chapter 8 of Acts. So in chapter 8, if you read with me starting in verse 1, it says, And Saul approved, speaking of Stephen, of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So we see the church has remained pretty isolated in Jerusalem since Pentecost. And now because of this great persecution, the church is beginning to spread. You know, and, we, and we said, we were going to see in the book of Acts, at first it's going to start in Jerusalem, then it's going to go to Judea and Samaria, and now we see that happening. They are leaving Jerusalem, and they're spreading to those areas, and they're taking the gospel. And the two things I want us to note about this is the fact that this persecution is so great actually underscores the authority of the church and the authority of the word. If the church wasn't a threat, if Stephen's message wasn't a threat, if what they were preaching didn't matter, you don't waste your time on this, right? It shows how much of a threat it was to the Jewish system and how powerful the word is and, and it authenticates the church and the message that the level of persecution that they're receiving and it spreads the church. Some people ask, why did the apostles stay? Remember that there were the 12 apostles at this point because they represented the 12 tribes. They stay symbolically showing that there is still hope for Israel's salvation. Israel can still repent and, and symbolically that's why they stay to show hope for the nation of Israel. Why do they mention that Stephen was buried? To be stoned to death was what they did for capital punishment in the Old Testament, right? That's how Achan died, if you remember back in Joshua. This was a shameful death, and in burying him, they're showing that he was actually honored in his death. It was a bold statement to the religious leaders at that time that Stephen was honored for how he died for Christ, that it wasn't shameful, that it was something to be honored. And then we see in verse 4 that as, this the pr as, the as, as they are scattered, as the preaching of the word goes forth, who is in control and who is orchestrating everything? Christ is. Remember we said this really isn't as much the acts of the apostles as is the acts of Christ through the apostles, right? He is spreading his church. And that brings us to the story of Simon the magician. And so the gospel's being preached, a great many people get saved, they see the authenticating works and miracles, and there's this man, Simon, and he thinks, huh, I want to get in on this. So read with me in verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through, laying, through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And this again is going to show the church's authority. Because this man thought, just like Ananias, they're, they're very parallel char characters, that with money he could buy 
the gospel. He could buy this power. It was something that they could manipulate. And Peter says, you're not in, right? You're not in this group. You're not a believer. And it shows that the church not only has the vertical authority of having the true word from God and mission and authority from him, but also the horizontal authority to say who's in and who's out, right? Who belongs? What does it look like to be a true follower? What does it mean to be truly repentant? And what doesn't it mean? So it shows their authority, and it shows that this is not something that you can buy and manipulate. Then we look at Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and I'm not going to touch on this except for to say, in Isaiah, it says that, um, or in the law, the eunuchs were very limited in how they could be a part of temple life, how they could be part of the system. You couldn't even enter, uh, I can't remember exactly how far you could go, but it was more like a woman. You couldn't go into the temple because of what had been done to you. So, but Isaiah says that someday that's going to change. What do we see here? Who is included in the kingdom? Who is part of the family of God? The eunuchs are. Showing that Christ, again, he's creating a new humanity, going back to Luke's message. He is starting something new. We're Jew and Gentile, where his grace is reuniting us all in him, right? We're all going to be in Christ and united in him. So that's the background that brings us to Saul's conversion. So we turn to me, if you're not there, in chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. But Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at, at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you were to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. We are going to spend a majority of our time today on um, this vision, because this vision is going to have an impact in all of Paul's epistles and theology, and in how he can suffer and endure the great persecution that he's going to be called to. So we see Paul is a man not only that hates the church, but is on a mission against the church. And this vision is going to transform him to one who loves the church, and he will take the mission of the church to the Gentiles. It's a transforming vision. And his blindness represents the internal reality of his life right? In becoming blind physically, it just shows what he'd been inside. But this vision is going to give him sight. It's going to change everything for him. We're going to be, as we camp out here, I just want to point you to two resources, because I can't go do this the justice that I would love to in the time we have. There's a book called I Saw the Lord by Abner Chow. It's a theology of biblical vision, and there, if you also just want to listen to a lecture on this, he uh, teaches a series on Acts and listen to lecture 16, where he explains all this. Because what he's going to show, and well, show scripturally, um, is the vision that Daniel has in Daniel 7 and 10, that the vision Ezekiel has in Ezekiel 1, that the vision Paul is having, and that the vision Stephen had, it's all part of one vision. It's all one, they're different. Daniel 10 just expounds on Daniel 7's vision, so does Ezekiel 1, so does what's happening here. They're seeing a vision of Christ. He says, Paul... Daniel, Ezekiel, Stephen, Paul all saw one vision that in the end, Yahweh will reign only and exclusively in his son. And then I would add, in his son over all of creation. And one of the main ways we see this is studying this phrase that means light flashed from heaven. It's going to connect passage after passage after passage. If you were in the Greek 
um, if you were in the original languages, you would see the connection clearer. Um, how this word is used and what it describes all goes back to these same visions. It links them together. It shows how they're similar. So we're going to start this light that flashed from heaven immediately consumes Paul. It surrounds him. And it's the same light that is described in Luke 17, 24. You can listen as I read. It says, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So when Christ returns in his glory, it's going to be like lightning that fills the sky. Okay? That's the same word that's describing. So Paul is experiencing something, something similar. I'm not saying the same. It's means similar to the glory of the Lord when he comes to claim his kingdom. It's also described in Luke 24, 4. It's a divine glory that, compare, um, that refers to Jesus' glory when he comes to, to claim the kingdom. That term, that lightning, also connects us to Daniel 6. Again, you can listen as I read. In Daniel 6, there's a messenger who comes to Daniel. He's an answer to Daniel's prayer, and he's described starting in verse 6 this way. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. And then this man goes on to, to describe how history is going to play out. Daniel, has ha he comes to explain what the vision means, and the vision tells him, here's how history is going to go from now to the end. And he, he focuses mainly on the intertestamental period, but he says that period is going to have direct bearing on the final day. So when the, the king comes, here's what, here are the events that are going to lead up to the coming and culmination of the king. And that, that description, again, of light and that description of the sound of a multitude takes us to Ezekiel 1-4, where it says a chariots and flashing light. And this alludes, again, to just the, the glory. All of it is this picture. Christ comes, and there is this beautiful, consuming light like lightning that comes in his glory. And these all really come to a head when you go to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verses 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And then Abner says, this gives us a clear idea that when this one, the son of man, comes and he claims the kingdom, here are the events that are going to lead up to it, and here's what it's going to look like. And Jesus compares himself to it, and Paul is going to be a witness to it. Paul is basically, in, in a lot of ways, a parallel character to, or even an extension of Daniel. Um, Daniel, again quoting um, Abner, it says, Daniel, you are supposed to bring a message of what is specifically to happen so that the Son of Man will rule on his throne. Paul, here's your mission. Take it to the ends of the earth and proclaim that the Son of Man now rules on his throne. Daniel saw what was going to happen when the Son conquered, and now Paul sees that the son has conquered, and he's going to tell the world that Christ has conquered. That's the message. That's evangelism. We're, and you're saying, well, it doesn't seem like Christ has conquered in the world we're living in. That's the inaugurated kingdom, right? He, when Christ came, when he died, when he rose again, he inaugurated the latter days. He brought about th the beginning, but we are waiting for the full consummation when he returns. But he, ha he is victorious. While there might be some skirmishes that we're having in the war, still, he is victorious the battle is over. He's defeated sin and death, right? That part is conquered and done, and so he's going to come again and reign in glory, and we go and tell the whole world, he's come. He's conquered. He's in co every nation now, in every tribe, and 
every tongue. They all belong to him. So that, and then, and then this is further solidified in the text. If you go to back to Acts 1, 6 through 12, the men, the angels who are witnesses to Daniel's vision in chapter 7, they're the ones saying Christ is going to return. We know it, we saw it, we were witnesses to it. And at the end of Stephen's speech, when he says in chapter 7, um, I'm in Daniel 7, I'm like, where is that? In the end of Stephen's speech, he says, I saw the Lord standing in heaven. That's Daniel 7. Where does Christ stand in heaven? when he takes the kingdom in Daniel 7. So Stephen is even alluding to it and saying, this is what I'm seeing. And is this vision that is going to give Paul his, his, a lot of his theology, we'll walk through that in a minute, and an, un, an ability to suffer for Christ and for the end because he's seen the glory, he's seen what comes, he knows the end of the story. There's also strong connections, and we've looked at this a lot, so I'm gonna, <laughs> if you thought I was covering things quickly now, here we go. Um, we've lo- talked a lot about how Christ is the second Adam right? And this son of man, if you're, again, do a word study, over and over again shows how Christ is a second Adam. That term son of man in Hebrew, it means son of Adam, which takes us back to Genesis 3.15, where you have Adam fell, and there's going to be what? A seed, a son of Adam who's going to come. And while it's not fully fleshed out, it's hinted at in Genesis 3.15, because we have the rest of Revelation, I don't mean the book of Revelation, I mean the revelation of God's word, because we have the rest of that, we know Genesis 3.15 is referring to one who will come, who's going to crush the serpent. We know that from Genesis 3.15, but we know he's going to be a second Adam from later texts. So we see that there's going to be a son of Adam, and we see that the seed is going to come, and Adam failed, and in Adam's failure, we all failed. But when the seed conquers, we're going to be, just like we're united to Adam, we're going to be united to the seed, and we're going to conquer. Adam dragged us all down. The seed is going to pull us all out right? This title of son is only given twice in the Old Testament, once to Israel in the book of Exodus when God is redeeming them, and once to David when in Second um, Samuel 7, where he's giving the Davidic covenant. And it doesn't mean, um, like, I have three sons. It doesn't mean that these are my descendants. It means I'm giving you royal position, royal authority. It's a, a position that they have to hold. So, speaking, and that's also further fleshed out in Psalms 2 and Psalms 8. So, if you pull all of this together, Look back, if you're still in Daniel 7, look back at Daniel 7, um, verse 17. In Daniel 7, 17, it says, sorry, I've lost my spot. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. But we just saw, right, in verse 13 and 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. How is it that the Son of Man receives the kingdom and the dominion and the glory forever and ever and ever? And then a few verses later, it says that the saints, the holy ones, receive the kingdom forever and ever. How how is that not a contradiction? It goes back to the second Adam. It goes back to what we've been talking about the whole time, the corporate solidarity that we have in Christ. That once we are in him, and we've talked about this all through our Old Testament study, what does corporate solidarity mean? It doesn't mean just that one stands for the whole. It means that the whole becomes integrated into the one. How integrated? So integrated that we are going to receive the same reward as the Son, right? And, and we're going to see that fleshed out through the epistles, that we are going to receive an inheritance, right? It's promised over and over again because we are in Christ. So we see this, this vision is going to start directing everything to Paul. So how does this connect to Paul? How do all these pieces come together? 
Paul wants to go to every nation, tribe, and tongue because of Daniel 7, 14, where it says that all people, Christ has conquered them. Because of Acts 2, remember when we said that the tongues of flame came down at Pentecost? It was an anti-babel. It was bringing people back together. Jesus has conquered. The church is its first fruits. And now Paul is going to tell all the nations that Jesus has won. So going back to the, to the vision in chapter not Acts chapter 9, he sees this great light. He sees this vision that connects all of those <laughs> dots together. And um, then we see Christ calls. Remember, and what does he say? Saul, Saul. Remember how we said the importance of the double name over and over again. When you see a double name, pay attention. Moses, Moses. Samuel, Samuel. Abraham. It always means this is a big deal. Pay attention. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. But Saul was persecuting who? The church. How close is the church connected with Christ? When you persecute the church, you're persecuting Christ. Again, that corporate solidarity. He sees the vision, and it's important to understand this because as we go through the rest of the New Testament, Paul is going to basically take the rest of the book of Acts on his shoulders. He's going to take the mission. Christ has inaugurated the church. He's established the church. He said, you need to be my witnesses to the whole world, right, of this truth. Oh, excuse me. But that hasn't happened yet, right? They've still been basically a Jewish church, in Judea and Samaria. Now he's got the man for the mission, the man who understands, a man who's connecting the vision to the purpose of the mission, and he's going to send him out. Um, what is the purpose of this vision? Why did he have it? Look down in verses 15 and 16. The Lord answers this question to Ananias. He said, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, what? To carry my name. Remember we said that was another major theme in the book, the name, and testifying to the name to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul's going to be called to great suffering, unique suffering as an apostle with this mission. And in order to endure that, he has to understand what he's suffering for and what the end is. His mission is to make Jew and Gentile one, a new humanity, which is what Christ had started in the book of Luke. What is the impact of this vision on Paul? We're going to see this as we go through the rest of our study, but I'm going to pretend you're in a helicopter and we're just doing a flyby of the general surroundings of the epistles. I'm just going to lay out for you a few of the ways that this vision is going to impact how he writes the books. When you come to the book of Romans, the whole book of Romans about how Jew and Gentile need to be one. The whole chapter 5 is all about the second Adam. Where does he understand the second Adam from? From Daniel 7. And he also is talking about the kingdom and the Lord coming for the kingdom. Well, if God is coming to claim the kingdom, who does that primarily benefit? Think of our covenant promises. It primarily benefits Israel. But Israel's out right now, right? They're in exile. So how is that going to work out? Well, he wrote Romans 9 and 11 through 11 to explain that. You see, it all ties back to the kingdom, how the kingdom plays out and what the second Adam means. That because that we have a second Adam, we have justification, a major point of the book of Romans, how justification plays out. In 1 Corinthians 15, how do we know that we're going to be resurrected? Why can we have confidence in that? Because of our corporate solidarity with Christ. If he was raised, so also will we be raised. See the connections again with the second Adam. 2 Corinthians 3, why is it essential for us to be like Christ? Because of how unified we are with him, that we need to be conformed to his image, which is also Colossians 3, that we are what? A new creation, right? Because Christ is, if Adam was a king, Christ is the better king over the, the new creation he's making and the new humanity that's going to be, we're not going back, think of this, we're not going back to the law, we're going back farther, we're going back to Genesis 1 where he's going to make all things new, right? We're going back to how it's supposed to be. And in Genesis, you don't have Jew and Greek, you have mankind, right? We're going back there. Um, 
Thessalonians, why does he say that Christ is going to come on a cloud, right? Because what do we see in Daniel 7? That he came on a cloud, right? In Philippians, in Ephesians, what the key words of the book of Ephesians are in Christ. How are we in Christ? Corporate solidarity. Philippians 3, that we'd be found in Christ, that we'd have linkage, again, to the Son. How do we know that every knee is going to bow? Daniel 12. Daniel 12, Daniel 10, 11, 12, they're an expansion of the vision of Daniel 7. In Galatian, what do we talk about? That we are not under the law, right? But we are free from the law. Why? Because the king has come and inaugurated the kingdom. The controlling vision of Paul's theology is the lordship and glory of Christ. Paul's writings are, and when Paul writes the epistles, it's because someone is threatening the Daniel 7 vision. So that's point one. Don't worry, the other ones aren't as detailed. So point one, Paul's conversion and its impact. Point two, before Paul can go on his mission, there's one more hurdle that has to be overcome. The Gentiles receive the gospel. And we have to understand, I don't know if we have anything in our culture that actually touches it. Jews hate Gentiles. Gentiles hate Jews. It's a mutual loathing. They do not work together. And so you have a Jewish church, and, I mean, and, and they, they don't even eat with the Gentiles. So how are you going to overcome such a great cultural hurdle? And we looked at this some in the lesson. Well, turn with me to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, it says that, I just want to make sure I should have. <coughs> Verse 5, now send men to where? To Joppa, and bring one Simon who is called Peter. So this should be, if you remember your Old Testament, when was the last time we saw someone in Joppa? Jonah. In fact, what's Peter's name? Peter bar Jonah. There are a lot of intentional parallels here. Jonah goes to Joppa. Jonah was tasked with a mission to go tell the Gentiles to preach repentance to them. Jonah's message overlaps with the book of Joel and the message that because God is gracious, he offers repentance. Jonah doesn't go, right? He flees. Now we have, and, and, and Israel failed. Israel had a mission to the Gentiles and they refused to do it. But God is not going to be held back by that. Now you have Peter. Peter's in Joppa. Peter has a mission to go to the Gentiles and to preach repentance. Peter's going to go. And God is going to help Peter understand that this is not wrong to do in his vision. In verses 9 through 16, we see that the heavens are open. This is, again, a, a specific, specific phrase that's only used in Daniel, Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7, Jesus' baptism, and Revelation 19. The Daniel 7 just flows through the book of Acts. Um, and we see a linen sheet. It comes down. Linen was what was worn by the priests, and the priests had to be clean. So we have this clean linen sheet that is coming down. And we have animals on it. And if you read through the, the text, these animals are described in creation language. Because again, new creation. So we have animals coming down on a clean sheet. And where it says you need to kill and eat, that could be better translated sacrifice. We don't sacrifice unholy, uh, unclean animals. But he's saying to sacrifice them and to eat. So the only offering that you would sacrifice when you would eat is the fellowship offering. So he's saying, God is changing. He's saying, this is new. These are clean. Sacrifice fellowship, right? Peter isn't just going out on his own and saying, I have the authority to like, God is changing this. God is telling Peter that now Jews and Gentiles are going to be one. Peter obeys. Peter goes. He preaches the good news. Look in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He preaches the good news, and in verse 44, how do we know that this is legitimate? 
While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And then chapter 11 just goes on to affirm the gospel is going to the Gentiles. This is God's plan. What Peter's vision is accurate. And so we have Paul ready to take on the mission. We have the hindrance to the mission removed. And that brings us to chapter 13. Paul goes. Chapters 13 and 14 are Paul's first missionary journey. He starts in Antioch and he goes town to town to town, preaching the gospel, suffering for the gospel, and establishing churches. And right on the heels of that, it is just amazing to me how quickly it happened, here come the false teachers. This brings us to point three, the Jerusalem Council. So if you look in chapter 15, chapter one, verse one, excuse me, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So they go to the apostles and elders. Do we have to be circumcised? And basically what they were requiring was that to be saved, you had to become a Jewish proselyte. You had to become Jewish. That's what these uh, men from Judea were saying. They go and what do the apostles say? Verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together and considered this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the hearts, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And so the council gives a determination. And I can summarize it in two ways. One, you don't have to become Jewish to be saved. You're saved through grace and faith alone. But then two, we, if you, the lesson you saw through verses 19, they do give them these rules, but don't do these kind of four commands. What are those commands about? Those commands or what you would, those actions would be what you would do to worship an idol. So you can't, you don't have to become a Jew to be saved, but you do have to quit being a pagan, right? You don't have to become a Jew, but you have to turn from worshiping idols to worship of the true God, right? Which is, message of the whole scripture, right? We turn from our sin to Christ. It's a picture of repentance. So we don't have to add a burden where you become, you add the law to it, but you do turn from worshiping false gods to the worship of the true God. The Jerusalem council is important because basically every form of false teaching that Paul is going to encounter and fight against is an undermining of that decision. And that brings us to our fourth point, the book of Galatians. How does Galatians fit in? This is what's happening in the Galatian church. Paul has preached the gospel, and the Judaizers come in and say, you have to follow circumcision, and you have to follow the law. So Paul writes Galatians saying, no, the Jerusalem council said no, the apostles say no, the scriptures say no, who, and he defends, and he, and he, and I'm, and he also defends his apostleship saying, I am an apostle, I'm an apostle to you, and I have the authority to say this. And we should just, I just want to take a minute and note, I hope we get to look at this in more detail in a different lecture, but when Paul defends himself and he defends his apostleship, it's not because he can't take any personal slights and can't handle it. It's, not beca it's because his mission and who he is become so intertwined, they become so interconnected that if he fails, the mission fails. That if we can discredit Paul, you can basically discredit the epistles, right? 
And so he's defending the message. He's defending the mission. Um, I heard when I was listening to this, um, the professor who was teaching, he had a friend who went to Yale Divinity School. And the professor said in one of the classes, how many of you hate Paul? And he said he was that only one person didn't raise their hand, that friend. Everyone else hates Paul. And the professor said, my goal is for you to hate him more when you're done. That's the impact that today Paul, people are still trying to impact and destroy and undermine the Apostle Paul because then you can undermine the rest of it. And I'm not saying Paul is the mission or Paul is on par with Christ. I'm, not, I'm just saying that God used him in a unique way to advance the gospel in a unique way that merged such that that's why he defends his apostleship. So he defends it to the Galatians. And in Galatians 3, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I think in a church like ours, I am confident that in the preaching that you hear week in and week out, that you do not think that you are saved by grace plus something. You know that it is by faith alone through grace alone. Maybe I switched that. Grace alone, faith alone. That's how we were saved. We don't, you're not taught and you know that there's not something else you can add to it. But often, I think the longer you're saved, you think you're saved by faith, but you're, justifi you're justified by faith, but you're sanctified through works. You might not articulate it that way, but you start living that way. Jerry Bridges has a great book called Disciplines of Grace. He illustrates this with the good day, bad day scenario. Imagine that you sleep in, you, you're yelling, you, know, you oversleep your alarm, you have to wake up your kids, you're rushing out the door to get them out, you know, so you're short, you're snappy, you're irritated, you're angry with them because we gotta be out the door now and you know, they're lollygagging in there. And then you're late to work or service or whatever you have to do and your whole day just kind of follows this trajectory. You haven't had your time, you haven't done your devotions and everything's rushed and you just feel like you've walked in the flesh all day and that evening you have the opportunity to witness to somebody. You, do you think God's gonna bless this and in it or do you think God can't bless this and, and let's say you witness when it doesn't go well. Oh, that's because you're being judged for the day. If you find yourself thinking it was because you're going to be judged or you weren't good enough or God couldn't use you because of how you lived that day versus you wake up at 4 a.m., you read the Bible for an hour, you pray for an hour and a half, you enjoy and happiness, serve your family all day, you walk in the spirit, loving others and loving people, and then you have an opportunity to witness. Do you think God's going to be in that? Do you think God's going to bless that because you've had a good day? We wouldn't always think that way, but a lot of times, I find myself doing that with lectures. If I've had a busy week and I don't feel like I've got to pray enough before I come, God can't bless teaching a, a, a Bible study today because I didn't pray enough this week. I, I'll catch myself thinking those things. You, you know it's wrong, but it just creeps in. Good day, bad day, but if you think that God's gonna bless you on a good day, what you're really saying is you can be good enough through your works. And if the whole law is that if you break one part of the law, you've broken it all, or then if the law is summed up in loving your neighbor as yourself and loving God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, would you do that every moment of the entire day perfectly? So is God gravy on a curve? Is God going to give you, like, you're good enough? No, we are sanctified through grace. Jerry Bridges says, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, and your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Every day of our Christian experience should be a day of relating to God on the basis of his grace alone. We are not only saved by grace, but we also live by grace every day. This grace comes through Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. We look to Christ alone for blessing our life. Look in verse 24. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be what? Justified by faith. Because of our faith, we have, what does Galatians 5 say? Freedom, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. As we leave today, I want to challenge you. As I was thinking about the legalism I see in my own life, and I was thinking about the vision that Paul had, I had to ask myself, I know I didn't have an actual vision, but the vision's been recorded for me, right? I know that Christ is coming. I know he's going to rule. I know the truth in Scripture. That's what got Paul through everything. That's what got Paul through all of his suffering and his trials and motivates his epistles and writing. Are you driven by knowing that Christ is coming again and his, in his glory he will reign forever and reverse the curse? Or are you snagged and caught up in the things of this world? When you hit those roadblocks, does, when you hit suffering and you hit trials, does the risen Christ and his victory push you through them or do you find yourself stalled? And if you find yourself stalled or stale or dry in your service, then let me encourage you, as I'm encouraging myself, we have to quit being legalistic and behold Christ. We have to behold him. And we have to behold him until that vision is changing us and transforming us to be like him. We have to behold Christ and rely on his grace, not only to save, but to perfect us to be like him. We can't do it, right? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for these women. Thank you for your word, and thank you for the glory of Christ that can transform our lives. Thank you for his victory that can overcome anything that you give us to face in this world. For his spirit who enables us, that we do not do it in our own power, but through your power, through your grace, through your enabling. And may we be transformed more to your likeness by getting rid of where we are legalistic, where we try to do it in our own strength. But may we obey and be disciplined because you've already accomplished it. And because it's accomplished, because we don't have to do it, that love and that joy would overflow in obedience. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.